Welcome to Deal Closers with Annette Tali, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Tali. Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Tali, and my guest today is Anna Kelly. Welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for having me, Annette. I am very excited to have you on my show. Uh, I met her last year in October at the Raising Money Summit, and you had an amazing presentation. Thank you for that. It was really, really good. Thank you. So, guys, let me tell you a little bit about Anna. She's the founding founder of Zenith Capital Group, Apex Multifamily, and Ari Mam LLC. She is a former top-ranked financial relationship manager for a private bank and began investing in real estate 20 years ago. Anna has purchased, renovated, and rented millions of dollars in real estate across numerous asset classes while working a full-time and raising four active children. Wow, I know that's a challenge. I only have two. (laughs) (laughs) She recently retired from her corporate career after creating financial freedom through rental property investing. She has active ownership and manages a rental portfolio valued over 60 million and has invested in over 2000 dollars as a limited partner. Anna actively seeks out the best multifamily investment opportunities for her partners and investors. She is a thought after speaker and enjoys helping others to overcome fears, increase knowledge and minimize risk in real estate. She's also a number one Amazon best-selling author. Congrats. Thank you. And I have to say, you do add a lot of value. If you are not following Anna on Facebook, you need to do that because your posts are amazing. Thank you so much. It's, it's so a pleasure me, for how, me to be able to give back. Oh, that's awesome. So how did you get into real estate 20 years ago? So I started out working in private banking with Bank of America. And so we handled the wealth of the top 10% of our clients in the bank. Um, we were trained you know, through all of our different uh, financial advisory classes and, and licenses and then started trying to talk to different uh, clients in the bank about bringing their investments all in-house with Bank of America. And in that process, I noticed that several of my wealthiest clients made quite a bit of money in real estate. They had rental properties, different types, you know, residential, commercial, et cetera. And one of my clients actually told me that the returns we were offering, which back then were pretty high, were nothing compared to what he made in real estate. And I thought, that's really interesting. I've gone through all this training and I've never heard anybody talk about real estate, but I knew that wealthy clients had it. And that one day, you know, when I got money, I wanted to buy real estate too. So that's what kind of planted the seeds in my mind about considering real estate as an option. And then I started to just try to make wiser financial decisions. So for example, instead of spending a thousand dollars a month on rent in Houston, Texas, I decided, well, maybe I should buy a little condo and that way, you know, I'm not throwing away rent money and one day I can rent it out. And so I started just kind of dabbling in, in purchasing real estate just to be a smart financial decision, not so much to become, you know, financially free through real estate in, until years later. Awesome. The deal. Okay. So Anna, what deal are we talking about today? 
So today, because you're so interested in multifamily and I love multifamily, we're going to talk about my first larger multifamily property that I purchased with partners about a year and a half ago. Awesome. And let me ask you before that, how many units did you have before you jumped into multifamily? Well, I started out with small multifamily. So I started out investing in four unit apartment buildings. Um, and I basically created the financial freedom really through small multifamily properties. They were all duplexes, fourplexes, threeplex apartment buildings, because that's quite frankly, all I had the money and the down payments to start buying. And so I did the Burr method with small multifamily properties. And at the time that I started um, to buy bigger, I owned about $5 million in rental real estate across about 50 units. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And then you decided, let me go bigger. Yes. So I had started buying them so that I could plan my exit and my retirement from the corporate world. And so I had a five-year plan to buy enough four-unit buildings to replace my income. And then I knew that once I retired, I wanted to start scaling up into bigger multifamily because it was always something I had uh, wanted to do. I just didn't have the, the time and the money to, to do bigger. And I didn't really know about syndication at that point. And so um, the, the bigger properties were always on my radar. And it was not until I had saved enough money that I knew I could safely retire that I really stepped in and, and took a leap of faith and tried to take down my first larger deal. Awesome. All right. So where is it located and what type of asset is it? How many units? So we purchased a 73-unit apartment building built in the 1980s, um, very close to Hershey, Pennsylvania. It is a class A to B area. And the buildings, because they were 1980s vintage, would be considered probably a C plus or B minus um, asset. They had already been updated on the exteriors and everything was in really good shape. No exterior capex was needed at all. Um, with the exception of a little bit of power washing. So we just needed to go into the units and update the interiors and bring them up to, you know, market level um, interiors and amenities, and then to be able to, to bump the rents because they were significantly below market, about two to 250 below the current market rents. Oh, wow. So that was a good, good bump once you fixed yeah. them up. Yeah. All right. So how did you find this deal? So Annette, this is really a, a story of the power of just continuing to do deals and to, to let people know what you do. So I had been really focused in my area and my market on buying up a lot of those small four unit buildings. And people in this area knew that I owned real estate and that I was buying property. And through literally a chance meeting at gymnastics to, of all places, I ran into an acquaintance of mine who heard me on the phone dealing with a repair and maintenance issue on a property. And she said, um, oh, you know, you must still be doing real estate. How many units do you own? I told her and she said, oh, wow, well, I, I didn't realize that you were just doing this full time. And I said, no, I'm working full time and I'm doing this full time on the side. And my dream and my goal is to buy a larger complex so that I can retire from my job in a few months. And her mouth dropped and she motioned over to her husband to come and she said did you know we owned a, an apartment complex and I said no I didn't and she said well we're getting ready to sell it next week we're about to list it and it's 73 units in Hershey and wow. I said oh I'd love to see it when can I get in it can I get in it before you list it and because we had this acquaintance relationship and she knew that I was a buyer they said sure no problem and they let me go see the property the next day uh, clear their time for me to see it and I started strong uh, negotiating to try to get that deal under contract before they listed it on the open market. Wow, amazing. So did they already have a listing price for the property? 
they did. They didn't tell me exactly what it was, but they told me what they wanted for it. And, you know, of course, it was much more expensive than anything I had ever purchased. It was a little over $7 million. And, you know, my mouth dropped inside, but I just was like, oh, okay, sure. I'd love to see it. And I thought, you know, this is my chance. It's an opportunity. And I had just started talking to some potential partners about doing bigger deals together and about raising capital for bigger deals, um, literally a couple weeks before. And so I just decided if I can get this under contract, I'll figure out how to fund it and finance it later. Yeah. And, and you touched on something very important that I, that I preach in my group, that is networking. You didn't have a deal before, but you were already talking to people about doing something together. You already had uh, zero in to people that you would like to work with and you were yes. talking about doing something together because yes. that made it so much easier for you to just once you found the deal you already knew who to contact yes and I had a couple of different options and so you know I knew if I can get this thing under contract I can find the people to partner with and if it wasn't you know one group it might be another group or I would go out to other people who I had known in the business for a while and we'd be able to figure out how to how to do it so I was very excited, you know, for the opportunity. And I thought, you know, could this one be it? And, you know, I walked the property. I was very impressed with the property. And when he gave me the numbers, I said, you know, I'd like to um, go back home and, and crunch the numbers and come up with an offer. And at that point, he didn't tell me what the brokers told him, you know, he could sell it for. He just told me what we wanted. And our number was about a million dollars off of that. So from the, the underwriting that I did and all of the, you know, valuation based on current rents, um, I felt like I should pay about a million dollars less than he wanted. However, I also knew that there was tremendous upside because this is a market that I'm already in. This is a market where I already had, you know, 50, at that point I might have 60 units. Um, so I knew exactly what rent should be and, and, you know, how quickly I could fill them, um, what finishes I would need. And I knew that my upside was so strong that even if I paid, paid him the million dollars more that he wanted, I would still make a significant amount of money on this deal. And so then it was, you know, up to me to try to figure out where can we find a sweet spot in the middle where he'll let it go without listing it, knowing he was going to have to pay a you know, steep real estate commission as well, um, that we could create a win-win. And so we went back and forth a little bit. Um, he showed me what the, you know, brokers were about to list it for. He gave me the, the marketing package that they had given to him and I came in on the low side, but he didn't have to deal with a commission and we were able to, to work some things out that were important to him in regard to um, his staff that was on site and, and wanting to make sure that they were well taken care of. And that was a big negotiating point that allowed me to get the deal without him putting it on the market for more money. Yeah, absolutely. So when you are dealing just with the owner without brokers in the middle, then they save a three to 6% commission and that can be yeah. savings to you absolutely yeah all right and you're awesome. able also annette to find out what's really important to them so you know for me when i said what's the most important thing if he had just said this is the price it's either this price or, or walk i would have had to then struggle with am i willing to pay what he wants for the deal and I would have probably been able to pay that and be willing to pay that. But being my first larger multifamily, I just didn't know if it would appraise quite that high. You know, once I started finding comps and things, I, I found out that it would. Um, but I was really able to go in and say, what's the most important thing to you in a sell and in picking a buyer? And by asking that question, I was able to find out that really taking care of his staff 
was so important to him. And he knew that if he listed that property, just about any buyers that came in would have gotten rid of his staff right away without any questions and brought in their own team. And so that became a really powerful tool for me to be able to say, you know, can I work with the existing staff in order to take this property down, make it a win-win for everybody and train them the way that I want them to be trained. And by being able to work directly with the seller, we were able to, to work out a deal where if it had been listed with a broker, we never really would have known that motivation and we probably would have paid a lot more for the property. Absolutely, yeah. So ask the question, what's important to the seller, right? Absolutely. All right, so how did now you have the property under contract, they got your the price, you found the sweet spot. How did you finance it? How did you fund this deal? So I went to one of the partners that I had just recently met with and we had talked about potentially doing a deal together if we found the right deal. And, you know, I did the underwriting and presented the deal to him and we decided that we were going to raise the money from other investors and then go out to the lender. And so we contacted an investor who he had worked with before and partnered with before in other deals and presented the deal to him and he was very, very comfortable with it. Um, so basically the three of us took down the deal as a joint venture and didn't have to go out to other investors to syndicate it. So once we had the, you know, the down payment money and the CapEx and the reserves and all of that um, secured through the partnership, we went through um, a lender to do agency financing and we went Freddie Mac small balance loan um, and went through that process to get the non-recourse lending. Can you explain what's agency loan for the people that don't know? Sure. So on these larger apartment deals, typically it's a loan amount over a million dollars. Typically you can go to a lending agency that's backed by the federal government, like Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And they offer much more attractive terms than what a smaller commercial bank can and that you can get 30 year amortization, not unlike you would on your own home. And you can get very low rates locked in for a pretty long term. So typically 10 to 12 years, you can get the rates locked and you can take an interest only period, which allows you to really lower your mortgage payment in the first few years while you're renovating and um, updating units in an apartment building and might have a little bit more vacancy because of that. Awesome. All right. And they are non-recourse, which means that you are not signing it personally, but it's, you know, if you default, then they take the property, but not your assets, correct? Correct. Now I will say non-recourse, you know, in theory really means that they won't go after you. There are some exceptions that they consider, you know, bad boy carve-outs. And if you commit fraud or you do anything um, that is, is really egregious, you know, to cause the property to go downhill, they could go after you. But, you know, typically if an apartment is just not performing well, despite your best efforts, they would take the property back and not go after you personally for the balance of that loan. So it is a very a powerful tool to be able to have agency financing at your disposal. Absolutely. So did you get the first bank, the first bank um, was able to do the loan or did you have to shop it around? We had a couple of different connections and one of my partners was familiar with this particular firm. And so we decided to go to them first and they were able to offer the most competitive terms from what we looked at from some, some local and regional banks. Primarily it was the ability to get the interest only financing and to get rates locked for 10 years on a 30-year amortization, where most of the other banks that we had talked to, like commercial lenders that we had used before on smaller different assets, they were not able to go out as far on the amortization, um, offer rates as low, or lock them as long, and they certainly weren't able to do interest-only financing. Okay, and the interest-only financing was just for a few years, you mentioned. 
Sure. I think on this deal, it was actually five years of interest only financing. Okay. And then typically on these agency deals, you can get anywhere from two to five years, depending on where the market is um, that your property is in. Okay. All right. So, and what's the exit strategy for this property specifically? So this particular property, Annette, we are actually planning on holding for the long term, for at least 10 years. And the reason for that is because while a lot of these syndications, they're looking to be in and out in three to five years because they have a lot of investors in the deal who want to continually churn their money and, and keep re reinvesting it and get the highest IRR or internal rate of return as they can. So they take these deals, they rehab them, they create significant value, and then they sell to capture that value. But then you've got the question of what do you then do with that money? And whatever you sell, you've got to be able to put into something else, um, you know, to get that same yield. And where we are in the market cycle, Annette, we're really close to hyper supply. We might be there. We might be on the way there. We might be slightly over. We don't really know until we look back, but we're at a, a top of the market for sure. And so we asked ourselves if we are buying an asset and, you know, values change, you know, in, in three to five years, let's say there's a recession, are we going to be able to sell it for what we want it? Or do we need to be able to hold it a little bit longer to go through a recession and back through some growth until values are high again? And so we decided, let's just keep this deal and plan to keep it for at least 10 years. And if we want to pull equity out at some point, we can, but it's in such a strong market, a really great area that has a lot of um, demand and not enough supply. Really strong school districts, close to a lot of employers, you know, really primed for growth. So it's just the ideal area and the ideal asset for us to hold for the long term and continue to, to cash flow on as long as we want the property. Awesome. Yeah, I do like buy and hold. That's my main <laughs> sure. investing strategy. Absolutely. All right. So tell us a little bit about the numbers. So how much money do you have to put on each apartment to bring them the rent up? Sure. So for the most part, we're only having to put in three to $4,000 per unit to bring the rents up. And what was really nice about this complex, as is the case with many mom and pop owners who have owned their properties a long time, they didn't have a mortgage or they had a very, very low mortgage from a cash out refi at some point. And so they could afford to keep rents low. And this particular seller really had the mindset of they would rather keep tenants that they know and that they know are keeping their property in really good condition and charge them less rent and still make a good profit. Um, and so what it did is it had many, many people in these apartment buildings who were you know, $200 below market as is with no updates. And so we know, knew that even if we didn't make updates, we could raise rents at least $150, probably $200 a month. And then if we decided to renovate the units, we'd get even more on top of that. So there was tremendous upside just by the nature of the fact that the seller had kept the rent so low and that most of the units didn't need a significant amount of, of work to raise them or to you know raise them to even higher premium levels. So those units that we did decide to update, we basically painted the interiors a nice grayish color, little more gray tones, um, but still enough beige that it wouldn't be too trendy and you know fall out uh, in mm -hmm. a couple of years. And we changed out carpet in the main living areas to a uh, vinyl plank flooring that looked really nice. And then in some instances, we resurfaced um, countertops. We painted you know dark brown doors bright white um, and just really made some minor cosmetic changes. The other thing that we had to do is some of the kitchens had mismatch appliances. So there might be a white refrigerator and a bisque stove 
and you know a bisque hood vent and then a black dishwasher. They just made no sense. And so to get the best rents, as people moved out, we decided to make appliances match. Um, they didn't necessarily need to be stainless steel for my market, right. um, but we made sure that they at least match. So either a nice bright white or black or stainless, depending on the unit. And we played with a little bit, you know, the, the type of upgrades and how much more rent we might be able to get with different color appliances. And in my market, it's not a significant difference. Yeah, and you touched something very important because <clears throat> that happened to me too. Like, you don't have to have granite countertops and stainless steel appliances just when you renovate. It really depends on your market, if your market yes. warrants that. Because I one of my, my second apartment, I, I did like beautiful countertops, granite, and stainless steel appliances, but I really didn't need to do it. And I learned that on that apartment. I could have just gone with like white and probably, yes. you know, plastic laminate. I did the exact same thing on a smaller scale with my first four unit building. You know, I went in and made it just absolutely beautiful the way that I would want it to look. But the reality is people weren't willing to pay that much more for it. And so you, you learn, what does the market say? You know, if you just go with somebody on Facebook that says everybody has to have stainless steel for you to maximize rents or everybody has to have granite, that might be in a major metro in a certain area. But if you're, you know, in, in a totally different area or in a rural area or a smaller town, um, you know, people may not like that. So, you know, for me, I'm in Amish country where there's a lot of, you know, tradition and people like more traditional things than they like, you know, the sexy, sleek, modern things. And so um, depending on your demographic and the age demographic as well of the people living in your communities, it will really dictate something different for every property, depending on, you know, where you are. So for us, we don't need that granite. We don't need the stainless to get top rents. And a couple of complex that have done it and tried it, they are not getting top dollar. They're lowering the rents back closer to ours, even though they have the same. So uh, because we're in a, a situation in my area where, where we are undersupplied, it doesn't hurt me um, that other units, a few of them are a little nicer and, and charging the same rents. Right. So you got to make the numbers. <laughs> All right. So you said you bought it last year. We bought it in December of 2018, so it's been a year and a couple of months. Okay, so give me an update. Were you, how many units have you renovated? How did, did the rents uh, go up? So we've renovated about 10 units because the beauty of this complex, and that, like I mentioned, was that the rents were so far below market that we were able to go in with $75 rent increases for everybody right away because most of them were on month to month leases. And we felt like $75, although it seemed like a lot, was very small compared to what they could, what their options were. So if they decided to move, they wouldn't be able to move for less than about $100 a month and they would have to get a one bedroom instead of a two bedroom that we were offering them. So we knew that most people would take that $75 increase and save us the need to put in the capex to raise those rents at that point. And then those that did move were the ones that we selected for renovation. And we were able to achieve, you know, 200 to $250 rent bumps with those renovations, depending on where their rents were at the time. Um, as people continue to move out, we do update the units and raise the rent significantly. But while they're there, we just went through the second round of similar updates. So for the second year, we gave certain people, you know, anywhere from 50 to $100 rent bumps um, to bring them closer to market, but again, to where you're not quite there at the top, and most of them chose to stay. The few that didn't, we renovated their units and, and are achieving, you know, really nice numbers. So 
that $75 rent increase was able to get us surpassing our year one um, budgeted profits just with the rent bump without any capital improvement. So that was really just the beauty of, of the deal and it being off market and below market rents. Absolutely. And did you do that increase all at once or did you kind of stagger it? We did it all at once for the ones that were on month to month. We weren't concerned that we'd have a mass exodus because, again, they were so far below market. We knew that, not, that even if people were upset with $75, they weren't going to be able to move without paying even more than that. And, and, so actually, we, we and the hassle of moving, that costs money too. It does. It does. And, again, we felt like $75 was fair, higher than you know, you know, some rent increases on an annual basis, but they knew that they had been well below market for so long that most of them were happy that we didn't raise it even more. Absolutely. That is awesome. Congratulations. Thank I am you. looking forward to getting to one of those larger buildings. So this is yeah. great, great information. Expert tips. All right. So now we're going to talk about the three tips that you are going to give us today. And Anna is going to talk about three tips on negotiating a deal. Sure. So one of the things that's really important, we kind of touched on it, Annette, but in negotiating is really not coming out and saying, this is what I'm willing to pay for your property. You know, really the first thing we want to negotiate is price. So the key is to try to find out what is important to the seller and really get to the bottom of why they're selling. When it's an on-market property, it's harder to do that. The broker may or may not tell you why they're looking to sell. But you can still ask the broker if you're not working direct with a seller, what would a good sale look like to your client? What are they looking for? So for example, if I think that um, price is going to dissuade them, or I think, uh, hey, they're going to want to close quickly, so I'll make it a offer with a quick close. It might be a seller that actually doesn't want to sell quickly because maybe they have to work out some things in their personal life or they have a 1031 exchange um, that they're thinking about or they need to find one. So if I just jump right in and you know, try to negotiate price and, and offer what I think looks like a good sell, but that seller wants something totally different, then my offer is not going to be attractive to them. So it's always important first to ask either the seller directly or the broker, what does a good sale look like to you? What types of terms uh, would make the seller really excited um, and more likely to look at my offer some versus someone else's? And then ask them, are they looking to do a 1031 exchange? And what is their timeline for that exchange? Would they prefer that we delay closing a little bit? Or would they prefer that we do it very, very quickly? So that's a really powerful question that I think is really important to ask uh, your seller and your broker before you go in with an LOI of any sort. Awesome. All right. That's tip number one. So along the same lines, when dealing with larger apartment buildings, it's not likely that most of us can take down these bigger properties by ourselves. And so then we've got to be able to try to find partners as well. And so just like we would ask the seller, one of the things that I really learned um, over time, but I was able to put into good use was when you're structuring deals and you're working with partners, you've also got to be able to go in and not just say, this is my deal. This is what I want. This is what I'm willing to pay for returns. Are you in or are you out? Because when you do that, many people are going to be turned off or it might not work for them for one reason or another with something that they have um, in their personal or business finances. And so when I went to my two partners on this deal that we ended up joint venturing, 
I had to be able to say, you know, this is the, the deal that I'm bringing. It's really important to me that I have X. What is really important to you? And so just an example, Annette, was I knew that I was getting ready to retire. And so it was really important to me that I got a good acquisition fee for putting this deal together and for, for bringing it to the investors and to the partners. And one of the partners wasn't really comfortable with paying an acquisition fee. They wanted strong returns. They didn't want to pay the high acquisition fee. And we kind of went back and forth. And I said, listen, here's where I am in life. This is, you know, honestly what I need. I have to have this acquisition fee in order to make this deal work. But what I, I'm willing to give other things up. So tell me what um, negotiations would make you comfortable with me making an acquisition fee. Do you want a higher percentage of the cash flow, for example, or a higher percentage of the ownership on the back end, for example? So by creating that win-win situation and asking what's important to the other investors, we were able to structure something creatively and, and create a win-win for everybody, where if I had just said, this is non-negotiable, you're in or you're out, the deal probably wouldn't have happened for them or for me. Absolutely. That's so very important. I, and I never thought about that, you know, like negotiating other parts of the deal. Right, right. Because really that capital stack and the investors, especially when you're dealing with a joint venture, becomes very important because you want to make sure that people aren't coming in at kind of begrudgingly like, oh, Annette's being demanding that she wants all this money up front. She hasn't even put the deal together yet. You know, for some people, they're, they're going to take it that way. So if you can create a win-win relationship and show from the beginning that you're willing to negotiate for the best of all parties so that everybody comes in feeling excited about the deal and that they're getting something and that you're getting something, then it's going to make for a much better long-term partnership um, and potentially doing other deals together. So I'm so thankful that I wasn't, you know, stubborn my way or the highway on this deal as I might have been in my younger years. Um, you know, over time, you just learn that you really give um, by giving up as well. And so you've got to be able to in all negotiations, know what your bottom line non-negotiables are, but present them in such a way that you're willing to give and take um, so that everybody feels valued and, and it really ends up doing more deals together because of, of your flexibility. Awesome. All right. So that was number two. Let's hear number three. So the other thing, um, so we talked about negotiating with sellers and brokers and negotiating with partners. And it's also really important to negotiate with your lender. And so many people think that if you go out and you ask for rates and you ask for terms, it's basically set in stone. And so you think, well, this lender will offer me X, this lender will offer me Y, this lender will offer me Z. So I'm just automatically going to go with the one that gives me the best terms. What I've learned over time is really those terms that they give you are their starting point and their standard. But over time, the more deals you do with the lender, the more they want your business. And so it's important to be able to go and say, you know, listen, John, I just talked to this other bank over here and they're willing to offer me a better rate than you are. And I really like to do business with you, but I, the rate's really important to me. So can you, you know, consider giving us a better rate or can you lower uh, the fees that you're going to charge me for putting the deal together, the origination fees? Or I know that you only do, you know, two years interest only, but in order to make this deal work, I need three or four years of interest only. And so you've got to be able to negotiate back and forth with your lender, tell them what's important to you and let them know that they are not your only lending option. And by doing that, you would be surprised at how many exceptions lenders will make for you to continue to do business with you. 
Um, and so it's something I wish I had started doing much earlier, but I've been really successful um, on this deal and in other deals um, since then to be able to negotiate lending terms that really make the deal um, much more profitable just by nature of, of, of a more quality loan. Awesome. That is so good. And, and, and it is uh, true because the bank that I use for my six unit, they offer certain terms. And then when I went back for the second one, I said, uh, you know, I know you do 25% uh, down payment, but I, you know, I think this deal, like, you know, can you do 20%? And they said, yes, I think we can do. But, you know, they wouldn't have said anything if I didn't ask first. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good summary. If you don't ask, you do not get. So if you want something, you know, extra special, if you want an, uh, you know, a deal that's not just okay, but that's stellar, negotiate on all points so that you be, you be, you know, create the most profitable deal possible for yourself and your investors. Absolutely. All right, Anna, where can people find you on social media? Sure. So on Facebook, I'm Anna, REI Mom Kelly, and I have a Facebook group called Creating Real Estate Wealth That Lasts with REI Mom. And you can find me there. I also have a website, which is www.reimom.com. Awesome. And this was amazing. Thank you so much for adding so much value to my audience. And, you know, I, I have so much stuff that I want to like, that I was taking notes and I will into action. Thank you so much for being here today. You're so welcome. Thank you, Annette, for having me. Bye, guys. Bye. This was Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com, where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.